I want you to take your Bible tonight, please, and turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter number 1 and verse number 1. We are going to continue, really we're going to begin, our uh, study of the book of Titus on Sunday nights. And while you're turning to the book of Titus, I want to tell you about John. John was a bit of a paradox. John was kind of a walking contradiction. John was born relatively poor. His father was a farmer. But he spent the majority of his life working among nobility. John was educated in Roman Catholic schools, but his greatest legacy is how he tried to undermine Roman Catholicism. John was a preacher whose preaching was so powerful, it literally started riots. One lady actually complained about his preaching upon hearing him on one occasion and said that he preached so loud that he shook the pen in her hand and she could not take notes. And yet... When his first congregation voted him in as their minister, he ran to his room and cried like a baby. John spent something like 19 months as a slave on a rowing ship under the deck, rowing all day, every day for 19 months. And yet he personally made the Queen of England cry. John is one of the most important characters in Scottish history. And yet he's buried under a parking garage. His name is John Knox. And John Knox was not merely the tip of the spear of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, but John Knox was the one swinging the spear above his head, leading the charge. He was a man who Queen Mary, whom he made cry, once said about him, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I fear all the armies of Europe combined. And one time after he had been a slave, he came back to Scotland and he fell on his knees on the beach and he said, God, give me Scotland lest I die. He's a man known for his passion for truth, his passion for preaching the gospel. But above all else, John Knox was a man who loved the church. And he wanted to see the church, in Scotland especially, he wanted to see the church freed from any distortion of the gospel message. And he was a man who, because of his love for the gospel and because of his love for the church, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was enslaved, he was kicked out of his country and brought back and kicked out a couple more times He was a man who was interrogated, threatened, hunted down, all because he loved the church. Where are the people that love the church like that today? I mean, the church has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? Scandals are up and confidence is down. Just this week, Christianity Today released an article that said attendance among Southern Baptist churches is at its lowest point in 30 years. Seems by any measure that the church has lost its influence with an outside world. And whether we want to be honest about it or not, every church member here at Sharon Heights that is not here tonight, that wasn't providentially hindered from being here, they voted to cancel this service. You know, that's just where we are. Where are the people that really love the church? I wonder not, do you love the church? Few of us would say we love the church the way John Knox did, but do we really love the church? Maybe you've been burnt a lot in the church. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've just seen so much sausage being made that it's hard for you to commit. It's hard for you to invest. And it's hard for you to regain the excitement that you once had. Or maybe because, you know, the church isn't cooler than Disney World and it isn't trendier than the latest coffee shop and it isn't as relevant as the evening news every week. Maybe you just think, what's the point? It sure can't compete with sports and sea dues so why should we invest in the church? Some of you think right now that you really do love the church. But I would tell you that if you would examine your heart, what you love is you love the way the church used to be. 
you have this nostalgic golden age way of thinking about what the church was. That's the church you love. You don't love the church the way it is. And still, some of y'all really love the church the way you think it could be. You love the church out there in the future that may or may not ever exist. But do we really love the church? Warts and all. Problems and all. What kind of people just give their lives for the sake of the church? Tonight I'm going to show you a man like that in the book of Titus. The Apostle Paul, a man whose heart beats for the church. We get a glimpse of that heartbeat in Titus chapter 1. So let's read together. Titus chapter number 1, verse 1 through verse number 4. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. As we talked about last Sunday night in our little overview of the book of Titus, the book of Titus is really a picture of what the church would be if the people in the church saw themselves as the gospel of Jesus Christ made visible. The book of Titus is not a book about how to have an old-fashioned church. The book of Titus is not a book about how to have a cool church. The book of Titus is a book about how to have a healthy church. That's about Jesus and nothing more and nothing less. What does a church look like? How does it function? Who leads the church? How do the people interact? If everything the church is and everything does it does is about Jesus. The book is about God's people wearing out the truth of the gospel. And I don't mean exhausting it. I mean wearing it around in their lives. Titus chapter 2, verse number 10, he says that's the purpose of why he writes. But let's understand here, the reason Paul writes the book of Titus is not merely to give information to Titus. Titus, as we should see later this evening, is a man who had known Paul for a long time. He knew everything Paul was going to say in Titus. He had heard all this before. This was nothing new to him. The purpose was not to inform Titus. The purpose was to transform the church that Titus pastored on the island of Crete. It's not about information, it's about transformation. And what Paul's doing very early in this book is he is throwing his apostolic weight and his apostolic authority behind Titus, saying to that congregation, really, you need to listen to Titus because Titus is my boy. And if you ain't listening to him, you ain't listening to me, and we're going to have problems. And so, as Paul seeks this transformation in the church, he seeks transformed leaders in chapter number 1. People who are leading out of lives changed by the gospel. What happens when you have the right people leading in the church? And what happens when you have the wrong people leading in the church? Titus 1 shows us that. In Titus chapter 2, we see what happens when the members of the church are transformed in the way that they interact with each other with real, deep, committed, discipling relationships. And in chapter number 3, we see what happens when lives that are transformed by the gospel go out and transform the world. But who cares? I mean, who really cares about the future of the church? Who cares Who cares if the right people are in charge? And who cares if the members live their lives in a way that honors God? Who cares if people interact with gospel motives? And who cares if we take the gospel to the world? Who cares? Well, Paul cared. And that's why he wrote this book. Because he cared about the church in Crete. And this text shows us the convictions and the concerns of this man, the Apostle Paul. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look... At the Apostle Paul's heart. Well, this is really is an echocardiogram on a man that's been dead for 2,000 years. And we're going to see a man's heart that beats for healthy, biblical, gospel-centered churches. And what I hope God does in our time together tonight is God takes what we see in the Apostle Paul's heart and He transplants it into our heart. So that He gives us hearts that beat 
for the church the way the Apostle Paul's did. So what kind of heart beats for the church? Well, first, I want to show you in this text, and we may not get out of verse 1 tonight, but that's okay, we'll hit it again in a couple weeks. Paul's heart beats with a focus. Paul has a focused heart. Now, the book of Titus begins the way any ancient letter would have began. It began with the guy writing the letter, introducing himself, Paul. And then, really what Paul does in verses 1 through 4, this is all one sentence. It's kind of long and lumbering and awkward. And Paul puts a lot of weight behind what he says in these first four verses. And everything is packed with deeper theological meaning. But Paul wants the church to know who's writing. He wants them to know this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, if you are St. Paul, you're going to use that from time to time, right? So what is Paul saying about himself that shows us his focus? Well, notice the very first word of the book is Paul's name. Paul. Saul of Tarsus. Saint Paul. But I want you to think with everything you know about the Bible and everything you know about Paul himself, I want you to think about how shocking it is that the Apostle Paul writes a book about what a healthy church looks like. Because the very first time the Apostle Paul walks across the pages of Scripture, what does the Bible say about him? It says that he is there trying to destroy the church. He wants to remove the name of Jesus from history, destroy the people of God. And the Bible even says to us in Acts chapter number 9 that Paul was breathing out threatenings against the church. That he is a man who's literally living and breathing to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And here Paul is writing about who should lead the church. Here he's writing about how church members should get along with one another. He's writing about how the church is the means God is going to use to change the world. What in the world happened to Paul? Folks, grace happened to Paul. And you know the story, right? That one glimpse of Jesus on the road to Damascus changed everything about how Paul thought about himself. It changed everything about how Paul thought about Jesus. And it changed everything about how Paul thought about the church. And so Paul is the guy who's going to give us our basically our entire theology of the church. He's the man who writes for us here in Titus 1 to 1 Timothy 3 what the qualifications are for pastors. And in 1 Timothy 3, deacons. He talks to us about all these important issues of the church. And he's a man at one time who hated the church. Why? Because one glimpse of Jesus changed his heart. And that message of the gospel of a resurrected Savior so changed him that Paul took that message with him everywhere he went. And everywhere he went, churches started popping up in his shadow. And now Paul has all these people of God to take care of, and Paul invests himself in them. Now, I hope you know tonight that you are not Paul. We are not apostles. We are not, most of us, church planners and probably never will be. We're not great theologians. We are not saints, at least not, you know, real saints like Paul. We have no halos over our head. But I want you to think about this for me tonight. Just just think about this. Let's be real. That every one of us here have different ideas about what's best for the church, don't we? Ricky's the only one will admit it, but you do. We all have different ideas, and I'm kind of wanting to know, what's he thinking of here? Um, All of us have different ideas about what the future of our church should look like, okay? Some of us disagree about the challenges that we may face and how to best meet those challenges. Some of y'all are Gaither people, and some of y'all are Chris Tomlin people. Some of y'all like to come to church dressed very casual because it's comfortable and it makes Jesus seem approachable. Others of y'all like to be very, very reverent because it seems, or very, very formal because it seems reverent and dignified. Some think kids should always be in children's church out of sight, out of mind. Others can remember a golden age when kids got beat half to death for squirming in church. We all have different ideas about the church. But have you ever thought about what it says 
about the grace of God in your life that you care about the church at all. And as different as your opinions may be from mine or from somebody else's, have you ever thought about what it says about God and His work in you that you care? Have you ever thought about that? Because there was a time for every one of us when we hated doing what we're doing tonight, didn't we? We hated coming in here and hearing some crazy preacher yell at us. And the songs they sing are so weird. And then the people are so crazy. And then before it's over, they're going to take up an offering and expect you to pay for the privilege of being here. But what happened to you that got you from where you were then to where you are now? Where you have these deep convictions about what the church should be. The same thing that happened to Paul, Jesus happened to you. God wrote Himself into the story of your life and He put in there a burden for the church. I remember when my dad first went to pastor the church where he pastors now. I was 18 years old and I've been in church, of course, my whole life. My dad has been a pastor my whole life. But I remember... Uh, being struck by something the older men in that church would say when they pray. And most of those brothers are, are with Jesus tonight. But they would pray in church or in the prayer rooms and they would say something like, Lord, thank you for the desire that's in my heart to be here. And I never had, I never had heard anybody pray that way, but think about that. That God has put in your heart that used to be so hostile to Him and so hostile to His people. God has birthed something in you that says, I love Him and I love those people that He loves. Well, that's one word of the book. Paul. Then he says, I'm a servant of God. This is a riff on his favorite way of talking about himself. It's interesting. This is the only place in the Bible where Paul calls himself a servant of God. Usually it's a servant of Christ or a servant of Jesus. But here, a servant of God. He doesn't write as preacher Paul, pastor Paul, St. Paul, Reverend Paul, or brother Paul, but as a servant of God. Now, I want you to get it in your mind that the word servant there, and some of your Bible translations may translate it this way, it means slave. Okay, and this is important because when I think of a servant, I think about a dude in a tuxedo wearing white gloves holding a silver tray on Downton Abbey. That's a servant. But a slave is a person who is literally owned by another. And the Greek word there is the Greek word doulos. It means a slave. What an offensive way to describe oneself. In our age that so prizes our own freedom and our own autonomy and our right to make our own decisions for Paul to come up and say, I have no rights. I have no agenda. I am not my own. But I belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus. Why does, why does Paul describe himself with that terminology so frequently in scriptures? The answer is simple. Because of what I just told you. He had seen Jesus. And folks, once you've seen him, you can't help but serve him. And Paul would write over and over again in his letters that that's how it should work in your life and in my life too. He would say in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So get this, Paul looks back at his conversion and he doesn't just see this decision that he made to, to go with Jesus after doing something else. But he understood that he had been in slavery to his sin. He understood that he had been in the chains of self-righteousness. And he understood that he had been in bondage to the desires of his flesh. And the Lord Jesus walked into that slave market and offered himself as the price that secured Paul's freedom. And Paul said, I am free today only as I serve him. Paul said, he purchased me past, present, and future. And so I belong totally to him. It's no wonder he loved the church. 
You know, it could be that many of us don't really love the church the way Paul loved the church because we have such a different understanding of what it means to be a Christian. We don't think about ourselves as slaves of God, do we? For us, many times being a Christian means that, yes, Jesus is a part of my life. And Jesus is there to make things better for me, to make things easier, to make things more comfortable, to answer my prayers and, you know, to keep things smooth and easy. That's what Jesus does. Really, we would say that Jesus is our servant. He exists for me, to serve me. And if, during His service of me, the church is useful in that, meets my needs and meets my expectations, then I will allow the church a place in my life because I'm so very gracious and good. But if the church gets in the way of the things that I'm after the church becomes inconvenient, if the accountability people expect of me at church starts to make me uncomfortable, then, you know, I'm going to walk away. But if I'm God's slave, then I go where He sends me. I do what He tells me. And I stay where He puts me. So I just want you to understand tonight that your comprehension of your relationship with God is going to affect your relationship with the church. Now, Paul was a man who had been hurt by churches. You read his letters and there are places where you can just read his tears on the pages. Because he's had people lie about him, people misrepresent him, people that desperately needed him, who did not want him, people who treated him in the worst possible way. In the name of Jesus, he had trusted friends betray him. The church hurt Paul deeply. Paul routinely had to wade through people's sin their stupid decisions and their terrible doctrine to fix all of that. Why did he keep doing that? Why is he writing here? And we're not really sure exactly of all the timetable of the book of Titus, but this is probably one of the last letters that Paul wrote. Why is it that here, again, towards the end of his life, Paul is investing in another pastor? And Paul's investing in another church when the church at sometimes had been so hard on him. The answer is because he's a slave of God. He didn't belong to himself. He wasn't connected to the church to impress people. He wasn't connected to the church because it it satisfied something in him. It wasn't about his connection even to Titus, the pastor of the church. He wasn't serving his feelings. He was a slave of God. He was owned by somebody else. And his master said, Paul, you are going to spend your life investing in the church. So he is a slave. But if you keep reading in verse number one, he is a slave who has a specific task. His master has given him a specific job to do because the Bible says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, when we read the word apostle, naturally, we we think of the office of apostle that people like Paul and Peter and James and John, those guys had. And that's what Paul's saying here. But really, that idea of, of that position comes out of the ancient thinking of an apostle, which was really just a delegate or a messenger. And sometimes they would be slaves if You owned a slave, you would say, I need you to go conduct business over here in my name. Go tell them this, go take this, go do that. That's what Paul's saying about himself. He says, I am a slave, but I am a slave who has been sent. And what was his purpose? His purpose was to preach the message of the gospel to people that needed to hear. He says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, I know you're excited about election popping up like three words into Titus chapter 1. But before we look at what Paul says there, I want you just to see a bigger principle here in this text. And that is Paul's committed to the church, but he's committed as a man who understands his place in the church. See, he knows what God has for him to do. He knows where God has put him. He knows what his role in all of this to play is. 
Just know that it's easier to love your church and serve your church where you know where your place is. You know what God wants you to do. If your place is just kind of your seat where you sit, then, uh, you know, your seat may not sit in that seat very long. Because it's not, it's not easy to stay connected where you don't know how you fit. So, Paul's place is serving for the faith of God's elect. We read that word elect and we think, or your translation may say chosen, something like that. And we read that and think, well, who are they? And, and how did they get elect? And, and how did Paul know? And all that kind of stuff. Well, if you look at what Paul said, Paul doesn't know. Because what Paul is saying here in this text, he's saying that God has designed it in such a way that those elect, whoever they may be, they are not going to be saved until they hear the message of the gospel and they exercise faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul said, I am the one that God put there so that those people he is going to save will hear the message of the gospel and come to Jesus. So Paul understood that God saved and that God had a response or a role for him to play in bringing people to Jesus. So what Paul really is saying here is that the driving force and the focus behind every single thing that he did was the salvation of people that needed Jesus. And even deeper than that, Paul actually is saying here that he believes God saves people. He does not believe that God is a hypothetical savior of all or a theoretical savior of some. He believes that God is a savior. And that what God loves to do is to reach down in the muck and the mess of our sin and pick us up out of that. And Paul said, God has given me a role to play in the work He's doing to save these people. My responsibility is to tell them the message. Their responsibility is to believe. But God's responsibility is to save. And Paul said, our God saves. Friend, why why do churches exist? Because God saves Why do missionaries go? Why do preachers preach? Why do Sunday school teachers teach little kids? And why does the choir sing and raise their hands in worship? I hope it's because we know our God saves. And Paul said the message of the gospel is that God saves. And the church is that message come alive in a world that needs to be saved. I'm going to tell you, that gets me shook. Man, I hope it gets y'all shook too because Paul said he has put us out here in the front lines of a rescue mission and he's going to use us as he saves those people. But those people, those elect who believe, after faith, they're going to need knowledge. You see that in verse 1? He's put me out here for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of the truth. He says, my heart beats to inform people with the great truths of the Bible. We might paraphrase Paul this way, and I don't think we would do any damage if we did. Paul could not stand the thought of an ignorant church. He could not stand the thought of a church that was disconnected from the great truths of the Word of God. And you keep reading in Titus and you'll understand why. Because he knows that sin and confusion, all of those things are downstream from bad teaching. Sin and unrighteousness... In the lives of God's people, they always grow out of confusion about who God is and what He expects. Paul could not stomach legalism in the church. Read the book of Galatians. He said some hard, nasty stuff to those legalists. And he couldn't stomach it because he could not stand the thought of God's people being confused, thinking they had something to do with their salvation. He could not stomach the idea of elitism in the church of Corinth where some people said, well, look at the spiritual gifts i got and the rest of you peasants. You can't do what I do for Jesus. Paul said, I can't stand that ignorance. He said, I've got to correct it with truth. He could not stand the ignorance of an immoral people who are self-deceived, thinking they belong to Jesus when in fact they didn't. Paul said, I want you to encounter the truth. So let us, let us embrace tonight that we should not tolerate or celebrate an ignorant church. Amen. We need to grow in godliness. 
And the only way that happens is with regular exposure to massive doses of the Word of God. And what greater call could there be for us as God's people than to step into the role Paul has here. No, we're not apostles. We don't have that same mission per se. But to say, I want to help people come to a knowledge of the truth. I want God to use me to help that young believer who's doubting their salvation. I pray God would use me to be the tool that brings him to assurance. For that believer that is struggling with sin, they've been fighting this same battle for years and maybe decades. I pray that God would use me in that Sunday school class to give them encouragement that would set their feet towards victory. That's what Paul's saying here. I want you to come to the truth. That's what God has put me here to do. That's a heart beating for the church. It's a focused heart. Beats for, beats with a focus. But I would say in verse number two that Paul's heart also beats for the future. He says, we do all of this, the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Paul said, I work in hope. And he said that that hope of eternal life comes from God who never lies. In a promise that he made before the world began, but now has been manifest through the preaching of the gospel that's being committed to me. Now, Paul says, I see the church here as this body of believers that is going to exist on out into eternity. But it's also the product of the eternal work of God in the past. Do you see how Titus 1-2 goes from eternity to eternity? God started making promises in eternity past. And those promises will be kept all the way to eternity future. And what are we tonight? We are people that got caught up in the fact that God started making promises. And so Paul said, the wind that fills my sails and everything that I do is the hope of eternal life. And you read Paul's writings and you get the sense over and over again that Paul really did live as if his future tense realities had just crash landed in his present life and that his eternal life was something he enjoyed now. And so he could live a life where he was rejected. He could live a life where people turned their backs on him. He could live a life that was not easy because he really believed he was a citizen of a different country. So people who love their churches, I think they really live that way. They see the church as something born from another world that is going to another world. And we don't see the church that way, do we? I mean, for all of our exhortations that the church is not the building, the church is the people. We don't see the church that way. And we sing in the choir and we see that poor brother or sister that's always a little flat. Or always a little sharp. Just can't carry a tune in a potato sack, you know, and it's like, good gracious. And we see that volunteer that's always getting on our nerves and always grating on us because they're so outspoken or because they're not as outspoken as we are. We see all these little warts and pimples and flaws. Paul said, I see the church as the work of God spanning the ages. Paul said, look around you tonight. Look around. Look around. Seriously, look around. He said, these are the people that God is doing his eternal work in. He said, on the outside, yeah, they may need some work. But he said, on the inside, they are the work of God. Paul said, view your church that way. Not with all the frustrations and aggravations, but as the place where God is doing His eternal work. Somebody once said very wisely that it was probably a hot, stinking mess on the ark. But it was better than the alternative. And Paul's saying here that yes, in the life of the church, we get weary and well-doing. Yes, we get frustrated. Yes, the people sometimes... Blow our minds. But Paul said, those people are the people that are headed for glory. Those people are the people that heaven has invaded their life and gripped their soul and is taking them to a better world. Paul said, that hope gives me patient endurance when I suffer. That hope produces holiness in me. That hope changes everything. 
And he said that hope comes from the fact that God promised it before the world began. God who cannot lie, he says, promised it before the world began. Now, we live in a world where people lie all the time, don't we? In fact, the Bible is, is almost so cynical that it says, if you say you don't lie, then you are a liar, right? I mean, the only person, you know, you can trust is a person who says, oh, yeah, I lie all the time. But can you really trust them? You know, I mean, <laughs> parents lie, spouses lie, people in business lie, kids lie. I mean, that's just, and parents, they know y'all lie. So um, it's just, we live in a world of lies. Paul says God can't lie. God cannot lie. And he made a promise and he will keep that promise. Now, here's the question. Look at what Paul says in Titus 1-2. God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God made a promise of eternal life before there was anybody to promise it to. So who did he promise it to? He didn't promise it to you because you weren't here before the ages began. Who did he promise it to? He promised it to himself. He promised it to himself. What Paul is saying here is that the work of God in the church is the result of a promise that God the Father has made with God the Son and God the Spirit before there was anything. When there's nothing else for God to do but talk to Himself and make promises to Himself, God said, we are going to form and save a people for our glory. Say, where in the world did you get that from? Well, I get it from Jesus who said that much in John 17. Verse number 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world exists. Say, so does that mean that if I know Jesus, that they were talking about me before I got here? Apparently. So Paul looks at the church. And he recognizes that this sinful imperfect, flawed, confused, broken mess of a mass of people. They exist because God made a promise to His Son. And God will keep that promise to His Son. And that Son made a promise to the Father. And that Son will keep that promise to the Father. You say, why is that important? Why does that matter? Friend, it matters because what God is doing here is a whole lot bigger than this building. It's a whole lot bigger than our programs and our ideas and our dreams and our failures. It is the eternal work of God. The reason that Paul's heart beat so passionately for the church is because he understood that the church was as big as the heartbeat of God Himself. He said, God's heart has been beating for those people for all eternity. How could I now as His slave not have that same passion? Man, if we could see it the way God sees it, we'd love it the way God loves it. But then he says this church exists because God at the proper time. Now we get down to days and weeks and years. The proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So God has been making these promises out in eternity. And those promises come into reality as Paul and the other apostles begin to preach the gospel. And people start to believe and God begins to build a church. And it works its way down to us too. When God brings the gospel into our lives and we believe that gospel by faith that He places us into the big church. Paul said God is manifesting this power and this word through our preaching. Now I think you can make the case here he's talking about His apostolic preaching. But let's not underestimate the fact that friends there is power in the message of the gospel when it is proclaimed. Paul said in Romans 1.16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He says, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said there's something happened. There's something that happens when I let the gospel out into the world. He said, everywhere I go, I just start telling people about Jesus and crazy things start happening. They might try and kill me. They might try and run me out of town. But there's going to be a church of believers left behind. Paul said, there's power in this message. I read that verse and every time I read it, it makes me think of the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. Poor old Ezekiel, God made him do some weird stuff. And one of the weirdest things that God made him do is go preach to that valley of dry bones. Remember that? God transports him up on top of this mountain. He says, look out over that valley. There's skulls and skeletons and rotten femurs and all this stuff out there. Dry, bleached white by the sun. God says, son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Lord, you knowest. Lord, thou knowest. And then God says, you preach to those dry bones. And what does Ezekiel do? He says, well, I don't know what he said. Maybe take your Bible and turn to Genesis 1. I don't know what he said. But he starts to preach. And what happens as the Word of God, the Word of the living God is unleashed upon those dry bones, upon that valley of death, where there is no life and no capacity for life. What happens when the Word of God is unleashed? All of a sudden, those bones begin to rattle, don't they? And all of a sudden, the foot bone connected to the leg bone. And the leg bone connected to the hip bone. And there was life where there had been death. And what Paul is saying is when the Word of God is unleashed into a world of death, he said life begins to spring up. When the Word of God is unleashed into a world of darkness, God will turn the light on and He will reach into the hearts of men and save them by His grace and for His glory. Paul said, that's why I do what I do. That's why I keep writing. That's why I keep preaching. That's why I keep giving. And that's why I keep serving. Because God just keeps on saving. That's what Paul says. Manifested through the preaching of the Word of God. So before we move on and talk about Titus, and we're going to hit him really, really quick. Sharon Heights, know this, that the future of our church is only limited to what the Word of God can do. It's only limited to what God can do through the message of the Gospel. Paul's heart beats with a focus. His heart beats for the future. But finally, in verse number 4, Paul's heart beats for his family. To Titus. My true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We know who Paul is. We don't know as much about Titus. In fact, the Bible says several things about Titus, but we don't know as much about him as we do, say, Timothy, that Paul also wrote some pastoral epistles to. We assume that Titus had been led to the Lord through the ministry of the Apostle Paul because he calls him a true child in the faith. Uh, we know that Titus was a Gentile. Uh, we know that he was not Jewish. But what interests me here in Titus 1-4 is not so much Titus himself as it is Paul's relationship to Titus. Because Paul and Titus had nothing in common. Paul was older. Titus was younger. Paul was Jewish. I mean, he says, what is in Philippians 3? He says, basically, I'm the Jewish Jew that ever Jewed. And Titus, Titus was not... That's not an exact quote, you understand, but... Titus was a Gentile. Titus probably didn't know the difference between a yarmulke and a menorah. It just That wasn't his world. Thank you, brother. Paul was massively influential. Titus is just, you know, kind of sidekick. But still, Paul cares about him enough to invest in him. Titus, let me help you. Why does he do that? The answer is clear. He sees Titus as family. These two guys have nothing in common. From a different part of the world, from different backgrounds culturally, from different religious experiences. Paul said, we are family. Why? Because we have a common faith. Not just what we believe with our minds, but what's in our hearts. 
So friends, let's never fall into the trap here at Sharon Heights of thinking that these people that don't carry the same Bible translation we do or don't like the same music we do or may not dress the same when we come to church, those people aren't our family. If Paul and Titus are family, then I promise we're stuck with each other because we're family in Jesus. Paul doesn't have a narrow attitude. He cares for Titus and he loves this church at Crete. I'd just say that if the work of Jesus matters in your life, then his work in the lives of other people will matter. Which means that the church will matter. Do we love the church? Then I would ask, just like Paul and Titus, if you love the church, who are those spiritual children that you are investing in? The way Paul's investing in Titus. He invested in him, he trained him, he released him, he protected him. And I want to just hit a couple highlights of their relationship and then we'll finish up tonight. In Acts chapter 15, we read the story of the Jerusalem Council. The long and the short of that is that Paul has been pastoring Gentile churches, or planting Gentile churches. Jewish leaders start to infiltrate those churches and say to those Gentiles, before you can really be really saved, you've got to be circumcised. If you're really going to be real followers of Jesus and be Christians, you've got to be circumcised. In Galatians 2, Paul writes about his experience in Acts 15, going to the council of Jerusalem to straighten out this doctrinal mess. Here's what he says in Galatians 2, 1 through 5. When after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, that's an oddly personal detail to put in the Bible, isn't it? But it's important. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, Paul goes to this group of believers who are saying, or this group of people who say that you have to be circumcised to be a real Christian. And Paul says, y'all take a look at Titus. He is as Gentile as he gets. And he's saved, he's filled with the Spirit of God, and God is using him as he shares the gospel. So Paul says to those legalists, explain him. And they can't. So what's Paul doing? In Titus' life and in the lives of other people, Titus has become the walking, talking sermon illustration for the grace of God. And he is protecting Titus from every distortion of the gospel and using Titus to protect other people from distortions of the gospel. And keep reading in Titus. What does he expect Titus to do as a pastor of the church? Protect those people from every distortion of the gospel. Hey, there's nothing more important you can do for a generation of Christians coming up behind you, than to protect them from false gospels. Whether it's the false gospel of materialism, the false gospel of easy believism, whichever one you want to name, make sure they're clear about what Jesus has done for them. The best thing you can do for the church. But then he also releases Titus. He cuts him loose to serve. He sends him to Crete. You can read Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians, and you can see that Titus was instrumental in Paul helping that church through... Or Titus was instrumental in helping Paul... Help the church of Corinth navigate all their junk. And they had a whole lot of junk. But what Paul had done for Titus is amazing. He had reproduced his thinking. He had reproduced his heart. And he had reproduced his values in Titus. Do you know what it's called when you do that? It's called discipleship. Read Titus chapter 2. That's what Paul is going to urge Titus to do in his church. He says about Titus in 2 Corinthians 8, 23, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. Paul treated him like an equal. Now, you know the Bible. You know that Paul was not arrogant. Paul was not proud. Paul was not a jerk. But if you're Paul, who are you really going to think of as a peer? 
I mean, you wrote like two thirds of the Bible. You got you know, you ascended up into third heaven, right? You wrote the book of Romans. What Titus do? Titus didn't get circumcised. That's all he did. And yet Paul treats Titus as a peer. Look at what he said. He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. He threw his weight behind Titus. So there were people in Crete, I'm sure, that knew their church was in trouble. Some of them may have wanted Paul to come. Some of them probably didn't want Paul to come, but think they wanted, thought they wanted Paul to come. And what do they get? Man, they get stinking little old Titus. Where's, where's the big guy at? Where's the saint at? Where's the apostle at? Why do we get his lackey? Do you see what Paul's doing here in Titus 1? He's saying, listen to him. He's coming to you in my place. He's coming to you as my partner, as my helper. Imagine what that did to the heart of Titus, knowing he's going to deal with a troubled church to say, if nothing else, Paul's got my back. I'm sure that helped him. Friend, if you want to help younger people in the church, if you want to help people around you in the church, you need to let them know from time to time, hey, I've got your back. I'll throw my influence behind you as God uses you. And what do you think that that did for Titus? It made him, I'm sure, a bold preacher and a faithful mentor. And so now we're ready to begin verse number five. But we'll have to wait a couple weeks to do that just because of our schedule. I would ask tonight, do you love the church like Paul loved it? I mean, I know you're not Paul. I'm not saying you need to be. But I'm asking, has there been a lot of hurt? Has there been a lot of frustration? Has there been just, just a lot of years that have worn you down? Do you love what the church used to be? Do you love what you think the church ought to be? Or are you like Paul saying, I love it where it's at because that is the work of God coming to life in the world. Brother Dalton's going to come and give us an invitation tonight. And if you need to come as he sings... I'm going to ask you to come and say, Lord, put that kind of love in my heart for the church. Help me to see again with fresh eyes how this is the people and the place where you are doing your eternal work. Help me to see the gospel coming to life here. God, let us commit to the word of God being released in the world. God, do that in me. Do that in our church. God, give me the opportunity to invest in people the way Paul invested in Titus. To release people the way Paul released Titus. To protect them by clarifying the gospel. That's on your heart tonight. While we stand, I'm going to invite you to come. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our needs in this place tonight. Lord, you know the needs of our church. You know the past of our church and the future of our church better than any of us ever will. And Lord, we are grateful that this place is your work come to life. Do your work now in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to come.